Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Insights, a podcast powered by Zappy. My name is Ryan, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Steve Phillips, our founder and CEO, and Brendan McLean, our founder and CTO. We are going to be chatting with you today about generative AI and its impact on innovation, productivity, and the world of consumer insights. Gentlemen, good day. How are you today? Very good, Ryan. How are you? Good. It seems as though you've missed the black t-shirt memo, but we'll forgive you. Steve, how are you? I'm not bad, but I'm also not in the t-shirt. It's a black top memo. But Standard Steve Phillips. Color right. Yeah, exactly. You're a turtleneck, I'm I t-shirt. Change it, I, I change in the summer. You know, uh, before we talk about AI, Steve and I are planning to go to Cannes. I think I said it in a way where all the Europeans listening aren't going to judge me. Uh, and Steve reminded me that I got invited to a white linen party. So uh, if I'm not wearing a black t-shirt, I'm very happy to be in white linen. So thank you for the invite, Steve. <laughs> It's a timely conversation, guys, and I'm excited to have it. And for those of you uh, listening live, feel free to ask questions. Kelsey, who's our producer, is going to be mining the chat, and uh, we'll get to some questions that you might have. But um, we've we've been thinking about this topic for a lot longer than it was vogue, and we thought we would take some time to share our perspective, some of the things we're doing internally, but also to give you some ideas that you can take to your team um, once you leave this meeting or or once this leaves your AirPods. Um, so. Uh, I'm of the view generative AI is one of the biggest transformations that's happened since the iPhone, since e-com became a thing. And I think you two guys would probably agree, particularly for our industry. But Brendan, from a technical perspective, you've been doing this a long time. Why is generative AI so transformative? Well, I've uh, been thinking about this quite a bit because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of fads that come around and people always ask me, um, oh, no, is is this the next thing, or should we be looking at this? Or, uh, and this was the first time in a long time where I thought, okay, this this is something big. And I'm I'm specifically talking about ChatGPT, but I think when when that was rapid followed by GPT four, the jump there was for those that were playing around with it, um, the the jump was 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 huge, and so. I think I, I've gone through my whole hype cycle from the sort of beginning bit to, oh my God, to this is, you know, is my job even safe to, okay, I'm calm now, but uh, excited to see how we can use this. The thing that I think um, for, for many of us in the, in the technology space is, it's just the incredible reduction in time to value mm. because traditionally, tech companies would, would need to, if, if, if you wanted to use something, some of your, your all, all of us have our own data and we all have, we're all bringing a unique selling point to the market. And the question is like, how, how do you combine AI with your unique selling point? What you know, the reason for your business to exist? Now, there are people that have invested in uh, big data science teams. We have invested in our own team, um, but to create something, you know, with the likes of the power of something like Google or or Facebook or any of the really big sort of fan companies that spend a ton on AI, um, particularly machine learning and deep neural nets and um, those things. The fact that Netflix knows what you want to watch next and all that—that's a big investment. It takes time to train. It takes time um, to just get the data sets ready. It, 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 there, there's, a, there's a big process there. And then suddenly we're in a space where people are throwing stuff into prompts and getting value out the other side. Um, I think what ChatGPT showed us was there were a bunch of us, um, business people, tech people going, I wonder if I could just throw this document in here and you know ask it some questions and then going <laughs> you know i can't believe it succeeded and so it's it's the time to value i think that's 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 been so incredible and obviously there the other spaces are creative industries um so this is not just um gpt and the like but also stable diffusion dali and um that side there, I think, uh, I think Sam Altman mentioned this as well, that the big surprise was that many of us and myself included 
thought creativity would be the last thing to fall. And it turns out that's not the case. Um, that there is, uh, yeah, musicians being like people saying, why does Jay-Z not release this thing? We've got AI releasing the next Jay-Z album and it's, this is what he should be doing. So it's just, it, that's, that's another thing that's just been so incredible is um, watching, just, just watching creativity happen. I, I still think creativity and intuition is the last thing to go. It just forces actual creativity. Um, and, you know, we've tested some stuff on Zappy where the generative AI can beat the norm. And that to me is a symptom of companies not knowing what they know. And as a result, not being bold, um, almost more so than lack of creativity. But it'd be interesting to follow, you know, from GPT-3 to 4, I was one of the people who was like, oh, shit, this has improved a lot. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in a year? Uh, it's going to be mental. So, so Steve, you're somebody who's quite creative. I don't think this has disrupted you. I, I hope it never does because I, I uh, really value your ingenuity. But from a market research in, or consumer insights industry perspective, why is this such a great enabler? And what are some of the things from your perspective that are going to go away, leaving room for other things to, to happen? So I think I, going back to what you said originally, which is we've been thinking about this for a while. I remember reading The Future of Professions, um, which I would highly recommend people to read. <clears throat> book by Suskins, uh, father and son combination of professors, thinking about how the world of world of AI, the world of automation computer, computer will change professions. And and they wrote the book in 2016, and and it's very um, it's very appropriate for today. It's very relevant for today. They're thinking about how it will change professions. Um, they were just wrong on the timing because, frankly. We, we went through almost another small AI winter between sort of 2016 and 2022. Um, but they're thinking about how it will impact professions is the same as often thinking about how it impacted the research industry, which is hugely. I mean, every single element of it um, is going to change significantly. And it, going back to um, the, the developer side, uh, it, it always used to be that pe people would say, you know, you have a 10x developer and then so you have 10 developers. One of them could be a 10x developer. They're worth all the other nine put together. And one of the things AI now, because it's so good at coding to do is make everyone a 10x developer. Well, I think everything, I think what will happen now, whether it's from uh, desk research, which is frankly just better done with ChatGPT than with a desk researcher, whether it's designing a questionnaire. I mean, Julio, our head of uh, customer insights, just show me, ChatGPT designing a conjoint study. Yeah, it, I mean, that's pretty staggering. So our knowledge of methodology, our knowledge of the market, um, our ability to analyze data, our ability to chart data, our ability to tell a story associated with the data within a, um, a report, all of those things are going to be done significantly better by an AI, either next week or in a few months time. So those, those elements of our job are gone. On the other hand, I think, I think that one of the massive advantages for our industry is that the ability to use data to make decisions will be 10 x So I think there will be uh, 10 times as much consumer insight work uh, in five years' time as there is now. Because you always want consumer insight when you're making a business decision. I mean, we're business people. We, we want to hear from our clients about which direction we should go all the time. And you'd be crazy not to want that input doesn't necessarily make the decision, but you'd always want that input. Well, suddenly, if you've got the ability to have brilliant insight at your fingertips at a tenth of the price now and a tenth of the time scale of now, well, it, so it'll, it'll be a huge increase in the, in the volume of insight. So then you have to say, okay, what is the human's role in that? What is the researcher's role? And I think it is much more, much less about the traditional values of that sort of desk research and the analysis and you know writing of a report are much more a a role around the curation of the data asset, the cura the the working out which AI to use in which situation, how to uh, uh, maximize the value of your data, how to connect the dots between different data streams, and how then to inspire people to make the right decision. Because even if you show them straightforward data they don't necessarily do the right thing and so you, you're going to have data management and inspirational roles which I think are two of the roles we have now but they're two of the smaller roles and I think they'll become sort of 90 percent that would be my guess 
Yeah, it is crazy. So uh, for those listening, you're probably not going to Quirks London, but Julio is going to get on stage, I think later today or maybe first thing tomorrow. 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 Using some uh, plugins we've created with Generative AI, write advanced methodologies with two clicks. Um, I got to tell you something. I find that motivating as hell. And I think it's been holding us back as an industry for 20 years where we, we um, put the methodology on a pedestal. We put the report on a pedestal and the companies we all work for are trying to sell more potato chips, right? So like if we're spending more of our energy helping them do that and less worrying about, as you know, I always like to make fun of question seven in the survey. I think that's a, that, that's a better thing. What are, what are some of the risks you see for the industry, Steve? Well, I don't, I'm not sure I see risk for the industry. I don't say opportunities to the industry. I think, do I think it will employ the same number of people as it does now in five years time? Actually, maybe, I, probably yes, probably yes. They'll be in different roles. So I think it's it's not about a risk for the industry because I think the industry's future has just become much brighter. There's just going to be a lot more consumer insight. I, I have that slide that I've done, which is artificial intelligence leads to abundant insight. Right? I mean, it, it does democratize, it demonetizes, it, it distributes, you know, it's it's just brilliant, I think, for our industry. I think the... The concern is what the individual is doing right now. Um, and there's that Sam Altman quote, I think it's Sam Altman quote, which is your job won't be taken by an AI, it will be taken by someone who knows what to do with an AI. And I think that's very true. I think if you're in the industry now, not up to speed with these things, not thinking about how it impacts your career and how you can take advantage of it, then I think you're in a difficult situation. If you are thinking and acting on all the things I just mentioned, then I think you'll be in a very good position to become significantly more important in helping major companies make major decisions. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I think it's it's about upskilling people. And it, one of the challenges I have for all of the CMOs or head of insights listening is a simple question. What are you doing to upskill your people? Um, because what I see, Steve, Brendan, on a day-to-day -day basis is a, the average insights person is still being pushed to do and then think at, in the evening when they've put their kids to bed. Um, and what this enables is thinking and impact all day, not doing, um, which is great because I'd much rather play more golf, even though I suck at it. Um, and everyone who's listening knows me playing more golf just means I'm drinking a few more beers. Um but you know what? One of the uh, one of the things that's like so. Brendan and I are uh, probably more skeptical than hype guys. I would say. Um, I'll tell you why I'm convinced this is the future, particularly for this industry. It's because we play with data, and this can bring sense to data. This can bring empathy to data. This can bring perspective to data. So it, it's not as disruptive in, in all industries, but for me, it's like wow, we better lean into this. If you can take a 30 year statistician and ask one question and spit it out. Um, that's profound. I'm going to ask you one more curveball, Stephen Brendan. Uh, that wasn't on our list. The industry's been suffering with data quality. The enabler of generative AI is what it can do with data. Um, elephant in the room, we have a data quality issue in the panel space because we've driven the price down. Bots have been a thing. Per and I've even seen some examples of generative AI looking and feeling like a cat lady from Chicago. How do you combat those risks long-term, guys? And Brendan, I'll start with you. Well, that's obviously something we've thought quite a bit about. Um, so our, our conclusion, I, I mean, I don't know, is this a safe space to say this? Our, our conclusion was it was going to be very, very space, hard. <laughs> yeah, live streaming. Um, yeah, we're live streaming. I'm sure there's seven people listening. A few of them are texting <laughs> me, giving me shit right now. <laughs> so... So our conclusion um, may evolve, but it was that at least from, if, if we're analyzing the data coming in, uh, in in response to open end questions, we can't actually tell. Um, now, there, there has been a bit of evolution past that point um, when it comes to being able to detect snippets from, from open AI. I haven't gone deep on that and I'm, I'm skeptical about how difficult that would be to subvert, in, in other words, AI detection, because it, it really is good. I think the, the one way you can tell it's GPT is um, it won't say anything super definitive without a little caveat at the end. 
if you, I don't know if you've seen that, like, no, I really like this cat food, something. but I'm generated by a machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you know, just, uh, even if you ask it something that most people would just agree is, is, is rubbish. It will say like most people have, you know, but however, one should be careful to, you know, all, all, all that stuff. And that's obviously open AI taking its role in the safety space very seriously. So maybe you could catch it on that, but I think for us, the, the, the angle is actually like behavioral analytics is how does that text get in there? What does the browser look like? How, what is the actual timing between the mouse event, the keystrokes and, and all that? Because, you know, it's, I, let's just say, I'm, I'm glad we're not storing Bitcoins because, you know, the, the incentive for answering lots of surveys is, is, is not huge. We don't have like a vault of $7 billion waiting to be hacked. So we're going to be a bit lower down on the targets. And so obviously now the GPT has made it, GPT-4 has made it very easy to construct answers in response to questions and actually create a co coherent response all the way through. But then the rest of it, you know, making a browser look like it's human, um, making mistakes, pressing backspace because nobody ever types in a bunch of things without making a mistake. All those things are still stuff we can we can check for. So that's that is the angle. Um, but I think there's going to be lots of innovation in the space from you know uh, panels, communities, things like that. Ways of verifying this stuff. Um, Steve, I don't know if you've got other ideas there. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a major um, industri industry issue. Um, and and actually the industry associations are getting together and we're heavily involved in some of the work the mrs the insight um, insight association in the states and some of the other um people like smr are, are doing so we're getting very uh engaged in that discussion and that debate i think i think there are two two things one that we can help with specifically which is the type of work uh, brendan is talking about which is ai discovery i think the the more important area in my view, is the panel composition. Um, and frankly, I think one of the solutions to that is we have to pay more. And that money doesn't necessarily have to go on additional incentives. It probably does to a certain extent, but it has to go on things like double opt-in. It has to go on things like maybe a, a telephone call or a, you know, a Zoom meeting with the panelists once a year. It has to go on quality measures. Um, and it has to be across multiple um, multiple panels, which are all coming through different exchanges. Um, I think we need, uh, I, I, th I think we're facing the same thing that the marketing face, uh, industry faced it with programmatic. Um, yeah, and true. suddenly they all, they all looked at it. P&G, CMO of P&G got together and said, hey guys, I'm not spending any more on programmatic digital until you sort this stuff out. Um, and I, I think we're at that moment. I, th I think this is an existential risk for us. The good thing is, I think a lot of smart people are thinking about it now. I, I think, um, yeah, and we're, we're helping in some of those initiatives, but but the panel companies that we work with are, are getting together uh, across the, you know, as, as collaborators who care about this industry to solve, solve it at the root cause and the root of the problem. Yeah, I'm with you. I think, you know, paying more, going back to getting real people opted in and verified, novel concept, by the way. Um, and then uh, treating people like people would be useful. So let's assume we do that. All of us have to put some advanced AI detection in place to cover the backside. The one thing I would add to what you're saying is an opportunity. We begin to know more and more about people, whether it's Steve or the lookalike model of Steve. And so we can actually combat this with an additional thing that I'd add to the discussion, which is only ask people the questions we need to. Why do we continuously take people through the same shit? We, we already know who they are, where they shop, what they buy. And in many cases, we probably can start to infer what people like them think about the same damn generic cat food concept over and over again. And so we can go ask the two questions we need. And, and I think if we can attack it from all three points, we can make sure the foundation is robust because you know generative AI is fantastic, but if the data is shit, the insight will be shit. Um, and and yeah. primary market research, the data comes from people and their behaviors and their attitudes. Yeah, and I would add to that. I mean, if anyone out there is, is doing surveys that are more than 10 minutes in length, we, we know we know the quality goes downhill. We just know. So 
you shouldn't be doing it. But if anybody out there is doing that, please stop. <laughs> what are you doing? You're ruining it for everybody else. Anyways, um, so guys, I want to talk about some of the things uh, we're doing. Not, and this isn't about boasting Zappy's capability, but I want this to kind of orient people with ways to think about this, and it will back into some some tips for people. So, Brendan, you chair our AI Everywhere Council. We're part of that council within the Sumero uh, Portfolio Company Group as well. What are some? What does that mean? How do you consider your role with as the chair? And what are some of the things we're looking at from internal, external, product, go to market, so on and so forth? Just take us through that AI Everywhere Village and what that looks like. Okay, um, so this was uh, Steve's idea. So good idea, um, Steve. <laughs> I get the blame. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the, the what we were trying to do there is there. Uh, Steve was concerned that we wouldn't necessarily think about internal transformation with the same rigor that we would um, in terms of developing our product. So. And I, I, I think he's right there. We, we definitely weren't thinking about how everyone else, how, you know, how, how can we assist our colleagues in um, customer success, um, operations, account management, et cetera. So we immediately started having a lot of product ideas and I can, I can talk on those. I sort of think of them slightly differently. The AI Everywhere Council is, is sort of focused on AI inside a little bit more in my head, um, just because there's so many people on the product side looking at, at it um, from, from the what we present to our customer side. Um, so, but I, I think we'll get there, right? Um, you want me to talk about that too? Absolutely. Yeah. But so maybe I'll start with that because that is very interesting to people in this industry. I, I, what, what we're doing there, there's, there's quite a lot of low-hanging fruit, but there's also some, some big ideas. So on the low-hanging fruit side, um, I, the ability to, to summarize data and actually give people something more than a chart. We, all, we always have suffered between, you know, what, what can a consultant give somebody and how far can you go with automation? And it really starts with a simple thing of just looking at what our users do with our charts. They, our charts may, we, we may think they give you a decent enough guide on, on, on what business decision to take, but we don't have in the headline um, gummy fruits, raspberry um, is a clear leader in the, the, the pack and we therefore recommend you proceed with with this idea uh, we we just say you know this is the overview chart of how they they compare we've actually got that into production so now we we can bring in that that context and actually provide some some it look it doesn't look special i think this is what the thing for, for a human to do this chart you'd be like okay that's good but when when the engineers look at it they go okay well, there's so many different varieties of how you would construct this sentence but then the big idea is like, how far can you actually go? You know, can, can you get a huge report? Um, well, not a huge, the right size report. And that's, that, that actually brings another aspect to it, which is GPT-4's remarkable ability to summarize the important stuff. So you can give it 15 pages and ask it for one. And it'll pull out generally something which you, you would say, well, that is the main thrust of the stuff. I, what it threw away was the right amount of stuff to throw away. Um, so this is an area where we're experimenting, where we, we're really just trying to see how close can we get to the, the report that you would pay thousands of dollars to a consultant to create. That includes the charts and includes the introduction, headline summary, paragraphs, the conclusions, everything. Um, so that's, that's a very, very exciting part and something we're actively working on now. But Brendan's, uh, uh, he's naturally humble, so I'll pump his tires a little bit. What, what he just said, he took an afternoon off and went to a coffee shop and replicated something that 
is more robust than I think a lot of the outputs and deliverables I've seen go to CMOs, which is insane um, in an afternoon. So you can, you can imagine what six months of work can do uh, in terms of capability. Um, you know, another example, um, earnings reports. You can upload an earnings report to any company and say, spit out the top two things that matter. And it can do that really succinctly. Just think of how much information is amassed in that deep technical report and you can kind of codify it down. I, I think that's the, that, that is a very key thing is it's um, maybe to extend what you were saying, Steve, earlier around um, having hundreds of insights, it's, it's, it's actually the ability to drop it down to what am I actually looking for? That is, that, that makes everything so accessible because being overloaded with information is almost as bad as having no information. It's the old, and I think um, this is a big thing. It's the old classic um, researcher um, uh, client quote of the researcher delivering a 50 page report to a client and the client saying, Oh, can you just make it a three-page report? And the person saying, "No, I didn't have the time." Isn't that a Mark Twain uh, quote? I would have written less, but I didn't have the time. Been. I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. But actually, it is that same. It is. I'm just going to say, Steve. It, it, like people, us, all of us, naturally drift to complexity, and so this helps keep us more succinct. I mean, we naturally want to make things. I was thinking about this this weekend. I had a really productive internal workshop two weeks ago. We left with a beautifully succinct one-page canvas. And then it turned into like a 20-page notion guide. And I was like, what the fuck just happened here? <laughs> but it's like a natural human instinct to be like, well, let me explain all the permutations of this. And it's almost like, can you put that notion back in the notion page into, oh, by the way, notion is, has a chat GPT plugin. Can you just summarize this for people who don't have time to read all 70,000 pages, that'd be great. <laughs> um, and, and I've seen this happen. I'll share a, a quick story. So we had our, uh, our offsite in uh, our leadership team met in Cape Town a few weeks ago. And Brendan and I had this wonderful idea. We'll fly everybody to Cape Town during the summer and we'll sit in the sun. Um, turns out we sat in the rain, but what are you going to do? Um, but we went on this exercise. We were supposed to come back with ideas for an evolved value proposition. And we spent two hours in like, the, I think the important work, like uh, what are the problems? What are the, what are the uh, frictions that our customers have? Basically doing deep discovery of customer jobs to be done. And Scott, who runs our RevOps team said, oh shit, we're out of time. We have to go back into the main group. And he goes, I know what I'll do. I'll just upload all of this and say, can you write a value proposition? And so he did that. And then he said, can you make it a little bit less British? Can you make it a little more concise? Can you make it a little bit more punchy? These are all sort of like, we, as a company, we speak uh, US English and we're pretty direct. And so it got to a degree of tone that I was like blown away. And it was cool because we spent our time in the meeting talking about the deep consumer understanding and then had a basis point to jump off of um, from where we came through, which was, which was pretty cool. So what else within, within kind of research software are you looking at? So we talked about reports. We've talked about some internal productivity. What are some other areas, Brendan, that we're looking at? Uh, well, there's also areas we've thought of um, that we're, we're dabbling in. Um, we, we were looking to see, could you, is, is there a degree of, you know, simu simulated respondent that you could, you could play with? Um, I think the jury's out on that. Um, at least there's certain stuff which I think you, you, you might want to offer at a very low price point um, or free. <laughs> and just as a sort of early stage, you know, uh, panel, just, just, just to almost get the ideas flowing. So we, one of the things our data science team did was they, they created a virtual panel and they created multiple personalities out of real, sort of aggregates in our, in our database, who this person is, what their job is, where they live, um, th th those types of things. And then pitched concepts to them um, in, in quite a sort of focus group way. So though we don't do any focus group stuff. Well, may maybe it could just sort of be a side, side thing that we could add in with some extra value. And when they first looked at it, they were, they they were blown away by by it, but I think when, when you start digging a bit deeper, you think, okay, well, this 
it is having to make stuff up here because the product doesn't exist, the respondents don't exist. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're, what are we doing? Um, but, but what it does do is it, it, it gets you thinking because it's almost like having, um, it's like going to therapy. It's so, so you've got a couple of ideas and, and you've got this AI asking you various questions and telling you what, what they like and how they can work together to create a sort of composite product that meets all these needs. Um, and this is not something you would, you'd want to make the final decision on, but I think, um, something to use in private and then claim all credit yourself, potentially. <laughs> there is a really weird credibility thing. I gave a speech at, uh, in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, let me see if I can get the audience to lean in. So I just said, what does CMOs want from insights people? Right. And it wrote a list of bullets and I've never seen more people lean in. <laughs> <laughs> like take pictures and shit. It's like, you know, I could have been like, uh, you know, uh, the industry's czar and they wouldn't have leaned in anywhere near as close to like, well, the robot said it's true and this is legit. And I can't imagine, I can't remember how many people took a photo of that fucking slide, but it was, uh, it was great. Uh, but I think some of the, whether it's pre-respondent vetting of ideas to inspire thinking or, I mean, we did a hackathon where we're doing a lot more with conversational surveys. That helps the data quality problem. I think knowing what people do and think, how they respond can actually have a much more meaningful impact on a dialogue we can have, um, which, which excites me. Um, so Brendan, think for a sec about uh, internal tooling and productivity. So we've talked a bit about some of the stuff that we're innovating on, but what are some of the areas I think that across the business that that we're doing in terms of giving our employees an advantage of getting access to tools, but also helping them do their jobs better. Yeah, well, I, I would be remiss of a CTO to not mention GitHub Copilot. Um, For the people who aren't technical, and, yeah, I will. Quick I'll, I'll go there. Thank you. A quick explanation. Um, so this was a big surprise to me as well, as well as the creativity thing, is. You know, GPT is a, a GPT-4, 3, all of them. They're all language models. And it, in retrospect, it isn't surprising um, that what we do as engineers to tell computers what to do is a language. It's, it's not the same as English or French or whatever. It's much more structured and less forgiving. Um, but it is, it is a language. And as a result, there... There, there's various things. I think Codex was the first open AI thing and it could, could generate some snippets. ChatGPT can do pretty well. Um, but for those of us that have been playing with GPT-4, uh, it, it, it can write whole programs pretty well. Um, generally under 500, 1,000 to 500 lines. So there's, we've, we've got this across the business now and what it, what it basically, that what, what Copilot does is it plugs into the tool we use to write code and it just suggests the rest, but it, it can use code comments, which are really just for other programmers. Uh, what, you know, what we would write so that the future self knows what was I thinking here? So usually you sort of write, well, you know, I'm uh, going to connect to this panel and pull down some stuff um, in order to do this. And then you, you write that so that you know why this next bit exists. And now it just, sort of pops up in gray and says, you know, maybe you'd like to call it, write this function and have this code. And it, it is right quite often. Uh, there, there are quite a few skeptics out there, but some of us have gone to GPT-4 and the jump between Copilot and GPT-4 is incredible. And then of course, um, for anyone that hasn't watched Microsoft's demo of where they're taking this whole um, how far they're going to take chat um, in their products, the whole office suite, the, the entire Microsoft offering, really, you get an idea of where you can go with internal productivity. Yeah. Um, I you have to watch the video, am, everybody. Yeah. I'll put it you in the to watch LinkedIn that video. below. If you haven't watched it yet, uh, welcome, to, welcome to the world today. Um, please watch that video. It's, it's a good investment in your future, 36 minutes. Yeah, I, I would I would say that that video, there are three 
tech demos of all time. And the first one was like 1958. The second one was Steve Jobs and the iPhone. And then this one is of that caliber. Uh, it is, I think the one criticism you could have is, okay, well, don't, nobody's actually got it yet. So how much of that was scripted and you know how many takes that they have to do to do that but i i think for for those of us like inter internally to be able to pull stuff from salesforce um pull stuff from the platform create presentations you know get tables in that support the narrative go go from powerpoint to email you know it, it just being able to transform the, the context of of what you're doing and I, this is what we're doing in marketing now as well is multi-channel messaging, you know, to be able to go from a LinkedIn post to, um, you know, various other things. You can turn that into a tweet. You can turn that into an email. Um, you could potentially do account-based tweaks to those things. And previously we'd have to type all that in. And now we, a lot of that can be automated. So Brendan, um, I got a question for you. Yeah. So you said you've gone through your hype continuum from hype, nerves, excitement. I asked you this question because as an engineer, you're, you're, you have a technical set of skills, which many of our insights colleagues listening came up with, a technical set of skills. Why knowing what Copilot can do in terms of writing code, QA and code, and giving you alternative paths, do you feel comfortable as somebody who makes his living engineering things? Um, and, and I'm asking you the question because I think it will relate to why our insights colleagues should see this as an opportunity. But uh, and I don't ask you to bullshit. But like, what are some of the reasons you you're like, oh, this is great? So I, I have a slightly different, um, a slight nuance to Steve's uh, 10x engineer comment um, that everyone can become one. Because what what we've, well, what, what what I've noticed is that it makes small little mistakes. Um, and you can wield AI more effectively the more you know. And so I, I think what, what I'm seeing early signs of is that you may turn someone, a semi-engaged careerist engineer from a 1X to a 10X, but the 10X becomes a 100X um, because when, when it fails or when the pieces it's generating um, don't fit nicely together, you know what to do and you know what good looks like. So you can keep interrogating it and, and sort of mold it. And it's just like, um, I suppose the difference between, um, a, if, if you're a sculptor, but you've lost your hands and you're getting someone else to do it, knowing what good looks like is still important, you know, having taste. And I think that's still, that's still a thing across all industries is having taste is important um, or having the ability to appreciate what good looks like is important. So that's, um, that's one thing, but then I think for, for other companies as well, you know, Elliot, who's one of our PhDs, he and I both took Easter off and we, we, we went and did our own, you know, sitting by the keyboard trying to prove one or two experiments, we both came back saying, okay, we, we're on the other side of the hype curve. It's still amazing, but you do need the data. So we still have a future. And so that, that was the, the other thing is, um, you know, I mentioned that it, this technology dramatically reduces time to market. And we've seen some incredible things on, on, the, on the web where people have created amazing things in extremely short periods of time, but there's no moat for them to defend themselves against someone else that does exactly the same thing. So everybody's just got a lot more competent and the ability to create stuff in a fraction of the time. So you're still stuck with that age old business problem of, well, why you? And I think for people that have unique data, they, they can sleep well at night. It, it's a really, it's an interesting point, right, guys? Because like, we're talking about this as a great revolution in technology, but in many ways, it's soon to become a commodity, which means like, you got to be able to innovate on top of a thing that is 
transform technology, but like it's everyone has access to it for 20 bucks a month. You have access to it. Um, you know, and, and I think your point resonates with me about the, the context you have. Um, so I chair our diversity committee and I've been doing discovery for four months. And I said, let me try to write, let me, and for those of you who know me personally, you know, I suck at writing. Um, so I was like, let me put all my discovery notes in and see what it spits out. And it got me like 80% of the way there. Now that 80% was an entire day sat in my office, fumbling over grammatical errors, but that extra 20% was me with our context, our nuance, our people bringing in. And I, I think that's important. So Steve, one of the things we want to do is help the corporate community that doesn't sell software, but sells cheeseburgers or toilet paper or whiskey or whatever the hell they sell get out in front of this. I've heard from a few progressive uh, chief insights officers that they're similar to Brendan chairing an internal committee. What are some pieces of advice you have for the CMO listening or the head of insights listening of what they can do to start to get their organization ready for this? And if they're not ready, obviously we already know they're behind, but what's some advice you have um, for some specific actions that people can take? So I'd say two, two core ones. The first one is you start thinking about the data. So I'm just going to Apparently what, what Brendan said, uh, uh, at the end of this, to have any sort of competitive advantage, you have to, you have to manage your data carefully um, and you have to think about your broad data strategy. And frankly, CMOs have been thinking about this for years, but this has become way more intense and way more important right now than it's ever been before. Um, so I would say that's the first thing is have a very clear aligned data strategy and that includes data integration and it has data collection and none of your data can sit in PowerPoint. It has to sit in a database and, and you have to manage the data uh, very carefully. So that's the first thing. Then I would say, certainly at this stage, I don't think you have to make necessarily as a CMO of a large CPG company, for instance, a massive change uh, in your direction yet. I think you need to make your people understand what's going on and get intrigued and engaged. And I think one of the things that the that we've done with the AI everywhere is get everyone, we had that exercise with the leadership team where everyone had to come and say, this is how my job's gonna change. I'm gonna do some homework. I'm gonna look at uh, AI in my space and start thinking about what it what's happening. So just making everyone just go, this, this is revolutionary. So there is no question about it. Now, everyone in my organization, I want you thinking about how it will change your job. And simply doing that will get people engaged and, and looking at it and, and reading around the subject. And, and, and over the next three, three months, six months, 12 months, 24 months, you will be then be able to develop your strategies and, and people will be pushing for them because they're engaged and they're thinking about it. But if you try and ignore it or tell them what to do, I think it's too early. I think you just have to get them using it. So if you've got people in your organization not using ChatGPT and not reading about how it's being used and other similar AIs within their space, then you've got a problem. So if you get the people engaged and you start working on your data strategy, I think those are the two key things right now. Yeah, and it's a simple thing. I mean, just for some inside baseball, um, we're doing this. And all Brendan did was send an all-company email saying, go buy ChatGPT and expense it. And here's some InfoSec requirements you got to be mindful of so that we don't replicate uh, Samsung. Sorry, Samsung, if you're listening, <laughs> we love you. Um, but a little bit of safety is really all, all, all you sort of need, right? Um, and I, I think we've seen, we've seen pretty serious adoption since. Um, as evidenced by the expense bills coming in, but that's, and I thought, so Steve did this exercise. He asked everybody, whether you run marketing, engineering product, what it means. And it was fascinating to see how it impacts sales as much as it impacts all of the stuff you've seen Brendan talk about, um, which, which is fascinating. But, you know, there's another thing, Steve. I mean, I, I think if I look at a company like ours, we spend a, money, a lot of money on external technology. You could probably 50X that if you look at somebody like PepsiCo as an example. Um, and so I think another thing to do is actually put it to your suppliers. What are, what are they bringing to the table that will help you make more sense of your data, your community, your customer base? And a lot of the tools now are launching things. Like, so we use uh, Notion for internal knowledge management. And there's chat TV, GP plugins. You can just literally say, make this smarter, link it to this page, summarize the two. There's a lot of things you can do. So I would, I would look at your stack kind of holistically. 
Um, and, and I think, you know, Steve's point is just get it in the air, right? Get people playing with it. Um, I, I think, Steve, one of the things I think we should talk about a little bit is getting it in the air helps them understand AI. But what are we doing to help them develop to the job we need them to do? I think that, you know, we talked, you and I talked to a lot of heads of insights, and there's a big from two that needs to happen between the job somebody's doing and the job that their boss wants them to be doing. Do you have any thoughts about that? On, on the, some of the upskilling and the skills we need to be developing in people beyond the familiarity with the tooling? I, not a lot of detail yet. I, I mean, let's be fair, it's really early, right? So <clears throat> the GPT, uh, ChatGPT was launched in December. Um, so we're talking four months into this. What we know is that the, without question, it's revolutionary. Without question, it's going to change things. What we don't know exactly how, we, I mean, we've got some hypotheses and I've talked about how I think it will change client organizations. Um, but at, at the moment, I, th I think the most important thing is just getting used to it and start imagining how it would change your role. I mean, if you, it, you will have, if you're in a large organization, you will have a lot of people doing, um, you know, ba basic sort of uh, desk, a desktop, a desk analysis, right? Desk research. Well, th that should now go. So how are you going to repurpose those people? But the best way of doing that is to get them doing their desk research on, G in, on GPT, saying strengths and weaknesses, how they could, and then say, okay, what can we do? Maybe there's just more demand for more desk research. Suddenly, instead of taking two, two weeks, it takes two hours. And so demand spikes. So you need to be doing those experiments with, with the tooling that is available and see how, see how things pan out over the next six to 12 months. We believe in experiments. It, it is not, I just don't think anyone has the answer. I think it is a series of, series of trial and error experiments to, to massively improve what we're doing now and see how that changes, changes the future. Yeah, and well, and, and uh, Moore's law is going to never be more true than it is here. I mean, what we saw in the last six weeks in terms of development is nothing short of exponential. So I, I think buckle up is probably a piece of advice as well. <laughs> I'll tell you all a funny story. And this does not mean for anybody listening, I'm considering a career change. Um, it's well documented that when my time in software is over, I'm going to start a deli and make sandwiches for people. So I was screwing around the other night and I said, I live in the Metro West of Massachusetts. I want to start a deli that serves delicious sandwiches and craft beer can you write me a business plan, recommend vendors, and tell me how much capital I'm going to need to outlay? Can you imagine how much time that would have taken me to do by myself? How many phone calls? How many meetings? I literally ended up with like a, something I could have sold my wife to go do. <laughs> like quite literally, Joe would have been like, run with it. Let's go. Um, and, and that's like, that's just the enabler, right? Like that, that much time was then saved. We have, we have one question. Uh, I assume this is a Brendan question from our chat. Will AI be developed to be sentient? So the, 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 the first thing is that nobody really knows what that means. Um, I, there, there's a really interesting talk um, by a Microsoft guy who uh, he was ex-academic. His name is Sebastian Bubeck. And he, he wrote a, a research paper on basically the, their findings of GPT-4. And part of the problem is we don't quite have a super science-y way of defining this stuff here. So he actually switched to psychology to, to try and sort of ascertain like the limits of its thinking. Um, he, he came out with a, a couple of definitions though. So just intelligence in general, um, can it reason? Yes, it can reason very well. Um, can it solve problems? Yes, it can solve problems step by step. Can it do? Can it think abstractly? Yes, it can. Um, can it comprehend complex ideas? Yes. Can it learn? Mm, sort of. Um, we can talk about that in a bit. Can it plan? Um, can it come up with a? Come up with its own own plans on how to achieve things, eh, not, not really. Um, it's also missing other things like uh, it doesn't really have um, its, its own sort of set of emotions sort of uh, which, which really are there to guide our behavior. You know, they almost create goals. So we've, there's been a lot of emergent thinking now around getting, using language models to achieve goals, give them tools, um, give them a goal and 
then they can sort of work out how to do it um, through a series of asking Google and looking up this thing and placing an order on Uber and whatever. That, that type of thing Uber eats. <laughs> so there, there's a lot of talking around there, but it's not going to do that itself. It's not going to go, you know, I'm, I'm feeling lonely today. I'm going to send a message to Ryan Berry. So, um, you know, but I, I, I think that there are a couple of things like the learning. I think one of the things that ChatGPT does is that, you know, you, it can learn over, the, over the, the life cycle of the chat, but after the chat's gone, it's gone. Um, and so there's open question of like, how, how do we take it further? How can we make, we teach it more things? Um, and yeah, the, the, the other thing I think is gonna come around from the debate around AI safety, um, yeah. which is, you know, should we give it, should we try and give it emotions? Um, how, how much tooling should we give it connected up to? So I, I think the debate is gonna be around semantics and it's not gonna be necessarily an exact moment. It's probably something we'll look back on and say it was around then. That was when it happened. I, I do believe it will happen. Um, I don't see why it won't. So, uh, yeah. But I think we're, I don't know how long. It could be two years. It could be 20 years. There could be another AI winter before we get there. So big area of debate. All I know is I'm excited to see what happens. Um, this this next 18 months, we should see some wonderful innovations, a step change in the velocity of companies, and fuck, we need it. It's tough out there, everybody. Um, I can't thank you enough for tuning in live. For those of you tuning in after, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Steve, Brendan, thank you guys for taking the time to join the podcast today. I really appreciate it. It was fun to hang with you guys. Um, we actually riff like this often. It, the truth is we're just more well-behaved when we have you all listening because we talk over each other more <laughs> when we're chatting about this naturally. Um, so some parting advice to frame this discussion, get your teams experimenting and thinking about what this means for them and their roles. Evaluate your stack and your data, your offer and the talent of your people, and then watch what happens. It's a time to stay nimble and it's a time to stay well-read because things are changing rapidly. For those of you who are based in London and you found this topic interesting, um, Steve and Babita Earl and I are going to be hosting workshops in London to help insights departments think through AI in their world the week of June 5th. If you're interested, please send me an email, ryan at zappystore.com. Space will be limited, but it will be fun. Um, our next episode, we have two episodes left in season six, I can't believe it, is with Oksana Sobel, who's the insights lead from the Clorox company. Um, it's a really, really good episode. And then our grand finale is with my dear friend, Matt Cahill, who runs Primary Insights for McDonald's US. So we got some heat left in season six and we're already ready for season seven. So thank you all for listening. Kelsey, thanks as always for putting us in new places. This is our second time doing a live podcast. It was a lot smoother than the first time. Uh, all another case for experimenting. Have a good day. Be well, everybody. Thanks, folks.